There's an old adage that usually applies to friends who've been separated. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know, the longer friends are apart, the more affection they feel for one another. But this wasn't true in Paul's relationship with the Christians at Corinth. For absence became a detriment in their relationship. The Apostle Paul had spent 18 months in the Greek city of Corinth planning a church. After it was grounded, Paul had returned to his home base of Antioch. A few months later, he launched his third missionary journey. When he arrived in Ephesus, he heard of trouble in Corinth. And from Ephesus, Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. It was sent via his co-worker, Titus. And Paul's letter got a mixed reaction. Some of the Corinthians repented. They responded with godly sorrow that led to change. But others resented. They thought, how dare Paul speak to us like this? How dare him rebuke us? Who does he think he is? In fact, detractors in the church at Corinth began to question Paul's authority. They dared to cast doubt on his integrity, on his honesty, even on his courage. You know, it was one thing to disagree with Paul, but the Corinthians resorted to mudslinging and slander. Hey, absence doesn't always make the heart grow fonder. News of the reaction to 1 Corinthians came to Paul while he was in Macedonia. And in response, he picked up his pen and he wrote another letter to the church, what we call 2 Corinthians. In this letter, Paul is going to defend himself and his ministry. He's going to boldly confront his accusers. 2 Corinthians is a raw, emotionally charged letter. Paul shares his heart and pleads his case as he does nowhere else. And this makes 2 Corinthians a primer for everyone who wants to get involved in Christian ministry. Guys, serving God isn't easy. It isn't always hassle-free and fun. It can get really messy. At times, hurt people hurt people. 2 Corinthians proves that ministry is a contact sport. An effective servant for God has to not only be loving, but to be wise. Take, for example, life-saving, lifeguarding 101. You know, lifeguards learn never to jump in and swim within reach of someone drowning. Why? Because the frantic person will pull you down. They'll overwhelm you. You'll drown with them. What you do is toss them a lifeline. And the same is true in Christian service. Simply a good heart and a caring attitude isn't the only thing needed in ministry. There is a right way and a wrong way to attempt to rescue spiritually drowning people. See, these are the types of issues that Paul addresses here in 2 Corinthians. Here's a course in Soul Saving 101. Well, the letter begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, that's the city, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, and that's the region. Achaia was the coastal region of Greece. Corinth was the seaport city on the Isthmus east of Athens. And here's Paul's greeting. It's a common greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's greeting in all of his letters, grace 
and peace. But notice, grace always comes first. So you get God's peace only after you receive God's grace. Peace results when you come humbly and throw yourself on his wonderful mercies. And then verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful phrase. Blessed be the God and Father. You know, it actually appears three times in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul praises God for his past blessings, for the favor that has been bestowed on him in Christ. The phrase also appears in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter praises Jesus for giving us a future hope, blessings received when Jesus returns. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul praises God not for his past blessings, nor for his future glories, but for his present help and comfort in the midst of life's difficulties. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Realize the Greeks knew nothing of this kind of God. Greek gods and goddesses, they threw down thunderbolts from heaven and they inflicted curses on entire populations. They specialized in making life hard on those who crossed them. Natural disasters and sudden calamities were attributed to the capricious whims of the gods. See, you served and you sacrificed to these gods, not out of love, but to pacify them, to keep the gods off your back and out of your life. What a surprise to these newly converted Corinthians to hear that the true God is a God of mercy and a God of comfort. You can hear their sigh of relief. Wow, we serve a God we don't have to fret. Wow, we serve a God we can trust to pick us up, not put us down. Paul says as much in verse 4. He refers to the true God as he who comforts us in all our tribulation. This Greek word, uh, or the English word, comfort, translated from the Greek, is from two Latin words, which means with strength. In other words, the comfort Jesus brings us is with strength. Oh, sure, God lets us crown his shoulder, but just long enough to release our pain. He doesn't let us sit there and sulk. He gives us strength. God joins no one's pity party. Reminds me of the young mom. She wrote this. It was one of the worst days of my life. The washing machine broke down. The telephone kept ringing, my head ached, and the mail carrier brought a bill I had no money to pay. Almost to the breaking point, I lifted my one-year-old into his high chair, leaned my head against the tray, and began to cry. Without a word, my son took his pacifier out of his mouth and stuck it into mine. (laughs) Hey, I know people who like to share pacifiers. Oh, they they like to get together and nurse their wounds and cry over spilt milk. They grumble about how hard they've got it. But this is not the comfort that God specializes in. 
His comfort is more than a pacifier. God gives us strength and power to rise up in his spirit and to face and tackle the challenges that are before us. You know, God comforts us like I used to comfort my little leaguers when they'd get up to bat and they'd get hit by a pitch. You know, I'd check them over for serious injury and I'd wipe their tears and I'd rub a little dirt on their boo-boo. But then after a few seconds, maybe 30 seconds most, I'd say, listen, look on the bright side, take your base. We got a game to play. There's no crying in baseball. My high school football coach, he had a rule. You know, if you were seriously injured, you were supposed to stay on the ground. Don't move a muscle. Someone's going to come on the field and they're going to assist you to the sidelines. But if you just got the breath knocked out of you, or you just pulled up with a cramp, my coach wanted you to get off the field on your own and as fast as you could. As he put it, I don't want anybody clapping for you just because you got hurt. Sometimes Christians think they deserve applause just because they got injured. Understand, Jesus does comfort us, but it's comfort that refortifies us for the battle. Jesus refuses to assign permanent disability to anyone. He heals the hurting heart, but he does so in order to get them back into action. There's a game to be played, and we're all needed on the field. Well, Paul says God comforts us that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's been said, God's comfort does not terminate in the one who receives it. God works in us in order to work through us. He comforts us to make us comforters. See, God wants to involve you in his work, but we have to go through the necessary preparation. What kind of impact do you really think you'll have on suffering people if God saved you and then insulated you from all trouble? You never got sick. You never stumped your toe. You never sliced your tee shot. You've always finished first. You never got bummed out. I mean, do you really think people would want to listen to what you had to tell them about God's comforts and mercies if that was the case? What would you say to your friends if you'd never experienced the hurt that they're feeling? Never felt the throb of their pain. How could you help them at all? Sure, you could quote some verses. You could pass out some glib advice. But how far would it wiggle its way down into their soul if it wasn't laced with real empathy? When my son Zach was four years old, he spent the night with his grandparents. Zach and my dad, they were in the den playing cowboys. They were shooting it up. You know, I don't know if you can play like that anymore, but... Toy guns were ablazing. Villains and sheriffs were dropping like flies. Well, every time Zach got shot, he'd fall to the ground. His granddaddy'd get up off the lazy boy and he'd run over and he'd race over to the wounded cowboy and he'd open up his shirt and he'd cut out the imaginary bullet, you know, out of his chest and he'd sew him back up. Zach would jump up and they'd start shooting each other again. Well, at one point in the shootout, Grandma walked through the room. She decided to get in on the action. So when Zach hit the deck, she jumped in. She opened up his shirt. She cut open his chest. She got the bullet out of his chest. But rather than popping up again to continue playing, Zach just laid there, motionless on the floor. Finally, he looks up at his grandma and he groans. He says, but grandma, there's only one problem. They shot me in the leg. (laughs) 
Hey, to give good comfort, you got to know where it hurts. Here's a provocative quote for you. You need to mull this over. If you are going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in his hands. The trial you're currently enduring may ultimately have very little to do with you. God is using it to prepare you to minister to someone else at a time and in a way that will change their course forever. What we're begrudging and resenting now might be what qualifies us to speak into that person's life later. It is such a true statement. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Empathy is one of the most powerful forces on earth. The knowledge that someone else knows, someone else really knows and cares, can reach into the deepest depression and can lift that person out. But the person with empathy pays a price to obtain it. You know, the tendency for us when we get hurt is to shut down and to lick our wounds, to sit on the sidelines and sulk in our sadness But healing comes to us when we keep on caring and keep on loving and keep on reaching out to others. We need to remember, all God's healers are wounded healers. And of course, Jesus leads the way because of his wounds. He knows that he knows how to heal us of our brokenness, of our bruises. You see, God is pleased. We get blessed. People come to Christ, the kingdom gets built, the devil gets defeated when we redeem our hurts and turn them into help. Well, he says in verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Listen to this verse in the Living Bible. You can be sure that the more we undergo sufferings for Christ, the more he will shower us with his comfort and encouragement. In other words, as an abundance in suffering warrants from God an abundance of comfort. I love the following poem. Until I learned to trust, I never learned to pray. And I did not learn to fully trust till sorrows came my way. Until I felt my weakness, his strength I never knew. Nor dreamed till I was stricken that he could see me through. Who deepest drinks of sorrow, drinks deepest too of grace. He sends the storm so he himself can be our hiding place. His heart that seeks our highest good, knowing well that things annoy. We would not long for heaven if earth held the only joy. Again, that line, we would not long for heaven if earth held the only joy. Well, verse 6 tells us, Now, if we are afflicted, it is for our consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. When God allowed Paul to suffer, he was teaching him to empathize. And when God comforted Paul, he was showing him how to comfort others. Either way, God was working in Paul to work through Paul. Yet that's not how it was seen by the Corinthians. For when they saw Paul suffer, they concluded, hey, doesn't God protect his own? Paul must not be a servant of God. Look at him suffer. And then when Paul enjoyed peace and prosperity, they concluded, 
wait a minute, if the world opposes Christ and Paul is faring so well, he must not be doing much for God. You see, comfort or conflict, Paul was in a no-win situation with these Corinthians. And yet here Paul sets the record straight. Whether condemned or whether consoled, God is working in me in order for me to work in them, the Corinthians. If afflicted, he could better relate to those who needed God's comfort. And if consoled, he could better share God's comfort with those who were hurting. So Paul continues, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. In his critics' eyes, Paul couldn't win, but in his own eyes, he couldn't lose. For his hope was steadfast. If you suffer for Christ now, one day soon, you'll be comforted by him. And then he says in verse 8, and this is a truly incredible verse. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Whatever hardship Paul suffered in Ephesus, it severely crippled him emotionally. The apostle became depressed. Hey, if he'd been alive today, some doctor would have put him on meds. Like an old, tired dog, he just wished that God would put him down. Just call him home. Just put him out of his misery. Consider this now. The great apostle Paul, champion of the Christian faith, suffered from depression, and he wasn't afraid to let people know. He didn't even try to cover it up. He was unashamed of his weakness. In fact, he wants to be sure the Corinthians know it and knows that it can happen to them. Even God's servants can battle the blues. He says in verse 9, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Some commentators believe a warrant had been issued for Paul's arrest and execution. Whatever this sentence was, he was certainly in dire straits. He continues, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And here's the reason that God allowed Paul to get depressed. And it might be the reason you're going through your depression at this moment. He was stripping Paul of self-confidence, and he was replacing it with God-confidence. Man, he wanted Paul to know in his heart of hearts that we're all just servants. The power comes from God. You know, to me, it's more than ironic that my trash pickup day is always on Monday. That means on Sunday nights, after speaking to thousands and thousands of people for Jesus and leading hundreds and hundreds of people to Christ and performing miracles and all the rest of the things that I do on an average Sunday morning, at the end of that day of serving Jesus, guess what I get to do? I get to roll my trash can to the street. It's a fitting reminder that God is the one who raises the dead. I'm just the one who takes out the trash. Paul writes, it's God, not him, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us now, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. What a wonderful verse. On the cross, Jesus won for us such great victory over death. Why do you think that he would watch us flounder in this life now? He will still deliver us. 
God is faithful to the finish. And notice how Paul sums up his thoughts on Christ's deliverance. You also helping together in prayer for us. The Greek term is a picture of several people pulling together as a team to lift a heavy object together. Paul reminds the Corinthians that likewise we work together in prayer. You know, life is full of objects too heavy to lift, obstacles too fixed to move, mountains too high to climb on our own. But by praying together, we join forces and we overcome whatever it is that's lying before us. And we do it for a reason. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Pray together and we praise together. Prayer by many leads to praise by many. In verse 12, Paul starts to respond to the criticisms that had been leveled at him. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Now Paul gives a defense of himself because of his clear conscience. There is a Chinese proverb, a clear conscience is the greatest armor. Real authority is born out of a clear conscience. Paul says he acted in simplicity and in godly sincerity. You know, too many folks serve God from a guilty conscience. Oh, they serve to atone for not being or for not doing what they know they should be doing. Now, we need to serve God from a clean conscience. Our service should stem from being who we say we are. He says, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Apparently, Paul had been accused of duplicity, of not saying what he meant. They were saying Paul wasn't a man of his word. And yet he defends himself. Now, I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Now, Paul had written back in 1 Corinthians 16. You remember this from last week. He had written of his plan to visit Corinth, but he had qualified it. Deo valente, if the Lord permits. Realize Paul made plans. And there's certainly nothing wrong with a Christian making plans. We should plan. We should plan and pray. Plan and pray. But as you plan, be open to God's course corrections. It's really like a GPS. God may want to recalibrate your faith, your journey. So let him. And this is what had happened to Paul. Though he wanted to visit Corinth en route of Macedonia, God redirected him. But his detractors used this against Paul. They said because he didn't come when he said he was going to come, they said that he couldn't be trusted. They started calling him wishy-washy. They used his rescheduling to question his credibility. Paul writes in verse 17, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Paul didn't do anything lightly. He never acted flippantly. Paul had a godly reason for all that he did. Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? Paul didn't make decisions on earthly or human wisdom. He, he, he based his life on godly principles. 
Paul resented his critics saying that he couldn't be trusted. He tells the Corinthians in verse 18, But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. It wasn't that Paul couldn't make up his mind. Paul wasn't the guy who said one thing one day and the opposite thing the next day. His yes was yes and his no was no. And Paul points to his own preaching as proof. He says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Salvanus or Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. We weren't ambivalent about this. There was never a crack in Paul's voice. He never spoke with hesitance or a lack of clarity in his message. In fact, Paul's hallmark was the definitiveness of the truths that he preached. For he says, but in him, in Jesus, was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. See, here's where Paul got dogmatic. Not in his planning, but in his preaching. See, admittedly, there are a few biblical passages that are hard to interpret. And in those cases, it's wise not to be adamant. But those passages are the exception, not the rule. Paul says in verse 20, For all the promises of God in Christ are yes, and in him, amen. He says when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to the gospel, we can speak with certainty. Whenever we speak of Jesus, we need to be bold. We need to preach with a surety. There needs to be a surety in what we pro proclaim. None of this, oh, well, maybe, or if you, perhaps God will do this, or could be. No, in Christ, God is yes, and his promises are amen. Once on Monday Night Football, I was watching, and this reporter was interviewing Arian Foster, the running back for uh, Houston. Arian was a great runner and a bit of a philosopher. In fact, he told the reporter that he enjoyed learning, that he could learn from anybody. He made this statement. He said, after all, we're all just out here guessing. Of course, the announcers, they oohed and awed over his postmodern observation of life. But man, as soon as he said that, I sort of shouted into TV, No! No, we're not! I'm not guessing with Jesus. The guessing's over, man. Jesus is God's yes, and he is his amen. Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems, all of life's questions. Jesus is the ultimate amen. I'm pretty sure nobody on the television heard me shout, but it definitely made me feel better. Verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now recall, Corinth was a port city, and Paul draws here on a familiar scene. On the shipping docks, there would be crates that were labeled with a waxed impression. A wax seal on a scroll was its possessor's proof of ownership. And in a similar way, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is God's seal. It's his proof of purchase on us. God's presence in our lives is what gives us the assurance that we belong to him. It's the seal. Paul also refers to the Holy Spirit as our guarantee. This was the equivalent of a down payment. 
Think of the Holy Spirit as your foretaste of heaven. We get a taste of the paradise that will be when we're in the presence of God's Spirit. And so he says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Paul didn't want to visit Corinth because if he got there, he'd end up chewing them out. He was angry at their immaturity. You know, he wanted his visit to them to be pleasant. So they needed to get their act together before he came. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul would have never bullied or dominated other believers. Jesus is the Lord of the church, not Paul. But he reminds them he's just a brother who cares, and he's trying to share with them some biblical advice. And so chapter 2 But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. And the fact that it says he wouldn't come again in sorrow indicates that he may have paid a visit to Corinth that we're not told about in either his letter or in the book of Acts. Acts 18 records Paul's initial visit to Corinth, and it certainly wasn't a sorrowful one. He was planning the church. They were having fun. Things were going well. It's possible, though, that when Paul heard about the problems in Corinth, Then he made a quick jaunt across the Aegean from Ephesus to address some of the issues. And then he says in verse 2, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is in the joy of you all. Now, Paul didn't enjoy being the heavy. That's what he's saying here. He didn't enjoy coming down on people. He he wasn't the one who got a thrill in exercising church discipline. Usually, it was Timothy or Titus who were the enforcers. Paul just wanted to bring people joy, not cause them sorrow. And, And quite frankly, this is how we roll here at Calvary Chapel. I like to teach you God's word. I'm the one who likes to give you reasons to rejoice. Whereas if you do something that threatens yourself or others and you need to be rebuked, we send out the elders. And here's one of them. And after you deal with the elders, dealing with me is a true joy. (laughs) Folks can get mad at the elders and they'll still come to church and they'll still hear God's word. And that's a good thing. But if they get mad at me, guess what they do? They split. We never see them again. And thus, if I can avoid sorrow-producing confrontations with people, then they're more likely to stay and grow. They, They don't need those confrontations with me. They need the elders. Paul may have learned this the hard way. Who knows? But that's why he didn't visit the Corinthians when he had planned. Instead of risking a face-to-face blow-up, when Paul got to Macedonia, he sent them a second letter. And so he says in verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. 1 Corinthians was bathed with tears. If you'd have picked it up when it was first written, it had been half wet. Paul had written the letter in anguish of heart and in with many tears. And he says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, 
but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. The Corinthian sin was not just Paul's personal grievance. It should have grieved everyone. Now, you remember the rebellion that he had dealt with back in 1 Corinthians 5. It was a stain on the whole church. And you recall the situation, I'm sure. There was a brother in the church who had been shacking up with his stepmom. And the church had refused to step in. They were tolerating incest, no less. And worse, they were proud of their tolerance. Sounds like some churches today. Oh, they said they were non-judgmental. They were just full of grace. And Paul had to rebuke them. He told them the man's sin was like a cancer that would eat away the whole body if not dealt with. And Paul had ordered the church to insist on this man's repentance or his removal. He needs to shape up or he needs to ship out. And apparently, the man had shaped up. For look what he says in verse 6. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Apparently, after reading Paul's first letter, the church was obedient. And they gave the rebellious brother the boot. And it had the desired effect. He repented and came back with a good attitude. But when he repented, the church swung in the opposite direction. For they were now reluctant to restore him. They had been reluctant to discipline him. Now they're restored, reluctant to restore him. And so Paul has to exhort them, reaffirm your love to him. Verse 9, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. You know, we usually think of church discipline as a test for the person who gets rebuked but more so it indicates the church's spiritual health. It's more a test of us. Do we love righteousness? Do we love people? Church discipline is a test of leadership. And then Paul continues in verse 10. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. And if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Whenever a person repents, our forgiveness needs to be swift, for if not, we are playing right into the devil's hands. Revelation 12 verse 10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. Satan loves to take a person that Jesus has forgiven and bury him under a mound of condemnation. Let's not help him. Church people actually assist the devil by either withholding forgiveness or tolerating sin. That's why we need to be quick to both deal with sin, but we also need to be quick to extend mercy and forgiveness. So he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Paul's still explaining why he didn't come to Corinth. He sent Titus to deliver his first letter when he left for Macedonia. And Titus had yet to return and report on their response. And Paul wanted to hear from Titus before he visited Corinth again. And it amazes me 
that most of the ill feelings that the Corinthians had toward Paul arose simply because he didn't visit them when he said he might. You know, it just goes to show that the little stuff is what can cause the biggest problems. Even a miscommunication can get people mad at the pastor. Rather than assume the best, rather than just ask, folks jump to conclusions and they believe what's not true. It's so sad. Guys, we need to guard ourselves against the little stuff. Paul concludes the chapter. He says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And here's some historical background is helpful. A Roman triumph was the equivalent of a modern-day ticker-tape parade. When a general won a victory on foreign soil, and when he captured 5,000 of the enemy's troops, and when he gained new territory for the empire, he was awarded a state-sanctioned processional, what was called a triumph. This was similar to how Atlanta awarded the Braves when they won the World Series championship. What did we do? We gave them a triumph. We gave them a processional. In the Roman processional, the conquering general with his officers, they would ride out first in the golden chariot. They were followed by the spoils of victory. Then the victorious army, dragging along their conquered foe, would march behind. And then adding to the spectacle, priests came next, burning incense, filling the streets with a sweet fragrance. Now, Paul uses this familiar idiom to portray Jesus, our conquering general. For Jesus forever celebrates his triumph, and we are a part of that triumph. You know, Jesus won a battle on a foreign soil. He was the God of heaven, but he was dispatched to this world. He too conquered 5,000 people. Remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved, and just a few days later, 2,000 more joined them. Today, all believers are part of the victor's spoils. Paul adds to this analogy of the victorious general in verse 15. He says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. I love this. Hey, we are not only the victor spoils, we are not only the army who marches with Jesus, we are not only the officers who accompany the conquering general, but we're also the fragrance of Christ. You know what that makes you? A little stinker. It does. Wherever we go, we should give off the aroma of Christ. You know, to other Christians, you're a breath of fresh air. Have you ever noticed that when you bump into another Christian, meet another Christian in the office or whatever, oh, you're, oh I'm a believer. There's just this wonderful camaraderie. It's just like a breath of fresh air. A bond forms. And to folks who reject Jesus, you're kind of like a, oh, he's quite again. You're like an annoying odor. I guess since we're the body of Christ, you could kind of call us body odor. But when an unbeliever smells our scent, he opens a window and he tries to air us out. Hey, we're sweet perfume to some, 
we're noxious fumes to others. To other believers, we're the smell of delicious barbecue. No better smell. To non-Christians, we're the odor of a dumpster fire. Nothing worse to smell. Yet, the worst scenario is if we don't smell at all. If we're odorless, something's wrong. Hey, what an honor it is to be known as the fragrance of Christ. And Paul asks, and who is sufficient for these things? All the glory belongs to our victorious General Jesus. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. You know, the one smell, the one foul odor that neither believer or unbeliever should have to tolerate is hypocrisy. It stinks it up for all of us. Phoniness is rotten eggs and spoiled milk combined. No Christian should be guilty of playing the hypocrite. You know, in closing here, notice Paul tells us he wasn't a peddler of the word of God. When I think of a peddler, I think of a used car dealer on a 2 a.m. television commercial, slapping the hood, you know, telling you what you want to hear. That wasn't Paul. He always spoke the truth when he presented the gospel. This should be true of every witness for Jesus. You know, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to be talented to be an effective spokesperson for Jesus. You just have to be sincere. You bring the sincerity, friend, and God will use you. And with that, we have the first two chapters in 2 Corinthians. And so guess what you should read for next time? Any guesses? Chapters 3 and 4. You guys are getting it. You're getting it.